Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Okay, well, all these things I'm about to tell you about are events happening in 2016, just in case you happen to be listening to this episode down the road. Uh, first thing I'm going to tell you about is Stu Halloway is going to be speaking about closure spec at two different conferences. The first is Strange Loop, which is held in St. Louis, Missouri, September 16th and 17th. And the second is Java One, just after that, September 18th through the 22nd. Uh, it, again, he'll be talking about closure spec at both of those. The t- title of the talk is Agility and Robustness Closure Spec. Stu's really on fire for spec. Uh, it's really cool to see. He's got a lot of energy, always an entertaining and thoughtful speaker. So um, check those out if you're able. Um, speaking of conferences, the Conj is coming up. Uh, the Conj's location and dates have been announced. That'll be held December 1st through 3rd in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's a new location for the Conj. Uh, should be pretty fun. I'm going to be there, so I'll, uh, I'll see you there. Uh, the call for proposals closes Friday, September 16th. So if you are thinking about submitting a talk, and you should, uh, make sure you get that in by Friday, September 16th. Uh, there's a closure bridge coming up in Pittsburgh, September 9th and 10th. You should check that out, closurebridge.org. And there's an interesting workshop being held in North London. Uh, it's about 3D printing. Uh, uh, the, the title of the workshop is Closure and Thing Workshop. That's T-H-I dot N-G. And so this is a workshop that'll talk a little bit about how to do procedural generation of object models, which you can then print. And I've actually done this and used Closure to do it, and it's a really good fit. So if you happen to be in the North London area, that workshop is going to be September 10th and 11th, and if you look for closure and thi.ng workshop, I'm sure you'll find out more information about that. Uh, back on the conference uh, trail, there's a closure tree, which, as we well know, I have difficulty knowing how to pronounce, but that's okay. Uh, that's C-L-O-J-U-R, sorry, C-L-O-J-U-T-R-E. So closure tree 2016, that's going to be held uh, September 10th in Tampere, Finland. And this is a free conference. It's put on by Matosin. So uh, it's got a single track, uh, a late start, short talks. They're only 20 minutes long and a, a kind of a cool party, I'm told, afterwards. So that sounds like a really interesting event. Um, it's certainly, they announced it as being open to both newbies and uh, season closures. So um, highly encourage you to check that out if you happen to be anywhere near or can get to Tampere, Finland. Um, so that's all I got for you in terms of announcements. We'll go on to episode 108 of the Cognicast. So, welcome everybody. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2016, and this is the Cognicast. And today we're very pleased to have with us uh, a member and contributor, a member of the Racket community, a contributor to Racket, um, an assistant professor at Indiana University, uh, Professor Sam Tobin Hockstad. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much, Craig. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, we've had. Uh, Matthew Flat on a couple times. He's always been great. Uh, we kind of circled around again to, to say, oh, we should talk to somebody in the racket community again. They're always so awesome. And your name came up and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's done some interesting work. So we are thrilled that you were able to take the time to uh, come and talk to us today. Um, but uh, before we get uh, into matters technical, most likely anyway, uh, there's a question that we always ask at the beginning of the show. I warned you about this. This is the question about art. We ask our guests to share some experience of art, whatever that means to them. So I wonder what experience you'd like to share with us today. So I want to share an experience of architecture. So in the city of Barcelona, which I got to visit in 1998, uh, there's this incredible profusion of architecture by the modernist architect Antonio Gaudí. Uh, He designed a huge number of buildings and as well as everything from the cathedral that they've only just finished in the last few years to after something like 80 years of construction uh, to the uh, sidewalk tiles uh, in the city. So there's 
and his style is very uh, flowing, natural, uh, curvy, and really distinctive and unlike the sort of architecture that you see just about anywhere else. So one of the incredible things about being in Barcelona is walking around and just coming around a corner and you'll see this amazing building with these remarkable colors and shapes and that just seems like it's been poured into place uh, just a few moments ago. Hmm. So now I've I've been to Spain briefly and I visited um, at least one cathedral there. It's been a while. It was the one where uh, Christopher Columbus is entombed. I, I forget the name of it. It's it's huge. I think it's in Sevilla, but but I think of a cathedral which I believe is one of the buildings you said you were talking about. Yeah. And I I always think of the sort of classic you know giant you know Notre Dame style huge impressive like dominating stone architecture with huge ceilings and very medieval in in, in feel or, or seem or at least uh, Renaissance is is the one you're talking about at all like that or is it radically different? So it brings in a lot of the sort of ideas that you can see in classic medieval cathedrals, uh, but also a lot of really different uh, distinctive ideas to Gaudí. The cathedral is called the Sagrada Familia, and the thing that's most distinctive about it is that it looks sort of like a sandcastle, the way that if you go to the beach and you make a sandcastle by, like, taking wet sand and pouring it to make towers that are sort of uh, futuristic and drippy and that sort of thing. The That's what this en truly enormous cathedral looks like, is it has many, many towers and spires that look like they're poured from uh, wet sand. Very cool. I'll have to take a look at uh, on the web for images of that. Uh, that sounds very, very cool. So thank you yeah. for Thanks for sharing that. Well, awesome. So, um, y you know, I, I mentioned that you're a member of the Racket community, you're a contributor. Uh, we've had uh, your uh, another member on a couple times, uh, Matthew Flatt. He was great. We were, we were thrilled to have him on. We're thrilled to have you on as well. Um, I wonder if you could, since this is kind of how we know you, talk a little bit about your uh, involvement in uh, racket uh, and and just kind of what you what you do over there, if if you will. Sure. So the primary thing that I do and that I've worked on in racket is a system called typed racket, which is a system that I originally created when I was a graduate student and that I've continued to develop over the past ten or so years and that's now got a lot of other contributors besides me, which is uh, very gratifying. Uh, but the basic idea of typed racket is uh, that it's a way to take your existing racket program and add some static types, uh, like you would see in a statically typed functional language like ML or Haskell or Rust or Swift or F-sharp, and you can type check your program. And not only can you do that for your whole program, but you can also just do it for part of your program. That's an idea called gradual typing that says that you can add these types to just part of your program, and the whole thing still works, even though you've only changed one or two components. So that's the biggest thing that I work on in the Racket community, but I also work on tons of other things ranging from continuous integration to bug databases to pattern matching libraries uh, to who knows what else. Those are some of the things that I work on, but primarily the thing that I've spent the most time on is working on typed racket. Mm -hmm. And so we've had Ambrose Bonaire Sargent on the show, and of course he is the author of uh, Type Closure, and he's very clear that he totally took many, many ideas and uh, I 
can't remember what word he used, but he might even have said stole, um, you know, uh, or certainly took major inspiration from typed uh, from type bracket. And I know that the two of you are from, well familiar with each other. Yeah. So Ambrose is currently my graduate student at Indiana University. He's been here for a few years now, and we've been working together actually on improving typed closure and figuring out what additional ideas can go back and forth between typed closure and typed racket and how the different systems can inform each other and uh, what new experiments we can do in each system that can help the other one uh, grow. And so that's that's been a really great experience for me to learn how these ideas play out in a different language and a different community where people have different priorities, where people are looking for different things, where the language is very different uh, in some important ways. And that changes how all of the ways you put together the type system fit together and what what you want to do, how you want to design things so that it can fit best into that language that you're working with. So I'd love to hear more about that. I mean, I I think there's any number of reasons for uh, the two communities to uh, learn from each other. I, I always have a great time every year when I go to RacketCon, um, even though I don't really do any racket programming at all. I mean, I have a, a Lisp that I use for work and that's what I'm familiar with, but I still really enjoy uh, hearing from uh, racket uh, racketeers, I guess is the word. Yeah, and uh, and hearing about racket, and it's just fascinating to me. So I'd I'd love to hear some of those insights that you've been gaining, both about the languages and the ways that they differ, and the ways that they could learn from each other, and specifically about typed racket and type closure. Um, what what have you what have you discovered? What have you found? What's been interesting about those interactions and comparisons and that type of thing? Uh, sure. So there's a bunch of examples. So one that comes up really at the beginning uh, when you start thinking about uh, comparing the languages is just how people write data structures in the two different languages. In Clojure, people usually write data structures using maps with symbol keys. Um that's a really common way of using the lightweight syntax that Clojure gives you and uh, making things that are flexible can be extended later and making use of the high-quality data structures that Clojure provides out of the box. And so that's a really common pattern for writing data structures in a lightweight way. Whereas in Racket, the structure definition form is used almost all the time when you want to create a new data structure. And so that's, I think, analogous to a def record enclosure. So that's, that's used really heavily. People almost never use hashes when they want to build their own data structure unless they really need it to be extensible in some particular way or easily able to be transmitted over uh, a network or something like that or serialized to JSON or something like that. And so the type system for hashes in type bracket is pretty boring. It's basically like what you would expect if you knew about hash tables in any other language. You have a type for the keys and you have a type for the values and that's about it. Whereas in typed closure, that's totally insufficient to support the way people actually program in closure. So one of the things that Ambrose developed when he started working on typed closure was a pretty sophisticated type system that can track uh, interesting uses of maps in closure, saying, well, this key is going to have this type this key is going to have that type, and so on and so forth. And also additional features there saying these keys are definitely here in the map. These other keys are optional, and if they're there, this is the type they have, but they might not be present. Uh, these keys are definitely not in the map. 
and that turns out to be important for other uses where people check that, uh, for example, that they've done an appropriate data structure conversion by looking at the fact that some key is no longer there in some map. So uh, you mentioned the uh, the racket uh, structure definition. Is that you said it's somewhat analogous to to a def record enclosure? The, the thing that makes me wonder is uh, when you define a structure in racket, is the resulting uh, value open? In other words, can I associate additional values in there that weren't part of the original structure, or is no, it no? You can't. Okay. So that's an interesting property of records enclosure is that you can, right? You ah, can, interesting. Yeah, so you can say a person consists of a first name, a last name, and an address, uh, and then I can hand you that value, and you can take that value, and you could associate on um, favorite food, if you like. And it, it remains, it, it retains its type identity, um, and but it still has all the keys. So it is truly associated. It, in most ways, it's, it's a record is actually like a is actually like a map uh, enclosure uh, with the addition of having a distinct type identity. So that, that so that, that's interesting, right? Because um, be, because it does point out kind of it goes right back to what you're saying about the differences in the way in the way that you program. And I, and I find it interesting that you that you ran up against that and mentioned it as as the one of the first things that you uh, that you encountered when you were thinking about the differences. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's one of the big differences. Uh, there's lots of other differences that come up based on how people program enclosure and how the languages are different. So another uh, big difference that manifests itself sort of less obviously, but is really fundamental to how the different the two systems, type bracket and type closure, work differently, is that closure is really oriented uh, around a sort of traditional Lisp-style top level where you're evaluating a series of forms. You might switch namespaces at various points, um, declare various things, but really loading in a new file is evaluating a series of forms. Whereas in Racket, uh, almost everything is done via the module system, which really isolates uh, things a lot more. There's no redefinition, uh, and modules are really pretty isolated from each other, and you can't uh, go into someone else's module. You can't pretend, switch to a different switch at, in the middle of something to a different module or do any of those things. So, and that also, um, that means that, for example, typed racket is implemented as part of the module system. It's just a normal use of the module system, whereas type closure has to sort of hook in at a lower level where it's intercepting exactly the data that the redevelop print loop gets so that it can transform things. Uh, and it has to be sort of outside the language like that. That ends up being sort of a different, different ways that the systems have to hook into the language depending on where those extension points are and what the sort of interaction style is. Yeah, so this is something that I need to understand better. I mean, I've Matthew also mentioned the module system. It is clearly different from the way that Clojure handles these things. Hearing your dis- and I'm ignorant, so I'm going to ask stupid questions. But uh, hearing you describe it, you you mentioned things like you can't go into someone's module and, and modify and whatnot. And I, and I wonder, and I don't, I, I can't imagine that it's the case that that Racket would would not consider itself to be a dynamic environment, right? Like you, it is a dynamic programming language where you can go in and. And you can kind of mold the program as you go, but but I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile that with your. First of all, ma- make sure I'm right about that, and second of all, uh, you know, reconcile that with the statement about about modules and their um, self-containedness, if you will. I don't, does that make any sense that I'm seeing a yeah, conflict? So, yeah. So uh, I think the definition of what a dynamic programming language is is uh, always a potentially contentious one. <laughs> sure. Uh, but. What I'll say is that in Racket, you can uh, 
using uh, reflective techniques go into uh, switch into a context that looks like you're the so that you appear to be inside some pre-existing module and you can uh, work in that context, see the things that they haven't exported uh, from that module and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple there's a couple things that you don't get to do. So one is you don't get to change the exports of or the definitions from someone else's module. Um, If you, if it's not, um, if they haven't given you a way to change something, you don't get to change it. And the second thing is that you can, in Racket, provide people with access to code, but with sort of a lower, uh, more restricted set of reflective capabilities. So, for example, the standard Racket IDE called Dr. Racket is implemented in Racket itself. And one of the things that I think is distinctive about it is that everything is running in the same Racket virtual machine, uh, the IDE and the program you're writing. Hmm. And Racket with uh, sort of the only other exception being the web and JavaScript has really tried to stick with a single process. Uh, everything uh, is sh- shared between the sort of IDE and the program model, That whereas other IDEs have mostly gone to a shell out and exec uh, the program separately the way you would do in Emacs, but also in Eclipse. Um, to actually run your program. Uh, so that's, uh, and that means that we want to have these protection mechanisms so that you can't just reach into the IDE and change change the behavior of the IDE from uh, within the program running in the IDE. Of course, you can write plugins for the IDE that are in, with which you can do anything, but there's a separation, but uh, just like, in an operating system between the user program and the system itself. And so there really are those strong barriers that are real abstraction barriers and that you can't, uh, you can't get around. So what this means for Racket's status as a dynamic language uh, seems like a question mostly of definitions, but uh, you can certainly write your own redevelop print loop. You can load code dynamically. You can do all that sort of thing. But uh, there's ways in which you can't change the internals of other people's components, libraries, systems, etc., and ways in which you can res- run code with a restricted set of permissions so that they can't escape out of a sandbox. I- I, I, I'm going to take a bit of a left turn here. Hopefully you'll see how it's related. But there's a problem in, uh, in when we program in Clojure that I'm wondering if there's a solution for in Racket. Because if there is, then that would be awesome to, to steal it, um, as we have with, so, with other good ideas. The, the, the issue is there's a sort of um, – it's tied up with the fact that the way that we tend to organize programs in Clojure is – with this kind of one-to-one-to-one relationship between projects um, and artifacts and Git repositories. So in other words, when I'm writing a program, uh, you know, I might be building a system. It has, it consists of two or three applications. Maybe they're services that I'm writing. And there's some code in common. And so, you know, I've got uh, my application A, application B, and then I've got code in common that I'm going to put in library C. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to, as a Clojure programmer, stick each of those in its own uh, Git repository and have each one of those contain a single project that uh, is capable of producing exactly one artifact, application A, application B, or library C. Sure. And so then working with those things becomes fairly awkward 
um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is simply from an administration standpoint and to, around version control. Um, if you want to make a change that encompasses uh, you know, some change in the library, but also some change in the two applications to make use of it, then there's really no atomic record that you can create when you've split them across three different um, uh, Git repositories like that, right? Like, I mean, if, if you... Definitely, think, yeah. Right? And, and, of course, arbitrarily complex variations in that scenario are possible where you have libraries that make use of libraries that make use of libraries. And, and I feel like that's something that there's got to be a better answer. There's got to be a way to... I mean, for starters, you could stick all the things in a single Git repository and manage things with branches where there are version conflicts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that has its own administration overhead and isn't necessarily easier to deal with. Um, but I also feel like it touches on that, that uh, correspondence between projects and libraries as well, right? Like that we have this idea that, oh, this is the application project, and it only talks about how you would produce that one artifact, the application artifact, and there's no, it's not that there's no uh, way to do it, it's just that people aren't doing it commonly, but it seems like there's no easy way to do it. So I realize this is a very vague question, but I'm wondering if Racket has anything to say on this topic. I definitely uh, run into this, and just as background, about maybe a year or a year and a half ago, we actually Split up the main Racket development repository into a large number of smaller repositories uh, to give ourselves more of this problem. Uh, be, and the reason we did this was that the Racket project as a whole had grown a huge amount over 20 years and it had originally started as really one sort of thing where everything fit together nicely and you wanted to develop everything in concert. But after 20 years, it had everything from typed racket to the runtime system and the compiler to the IDE to the web server to the code that built the website all in the same repository. And that has some advantages, but it also has some disadvantages, especially around uh, encouraging open source contribution from outside. Not everyone needs to deal with the huge repository and coordinating their changes with everyone else. So we decided to split everything up. And I think that's worked pretty well for us in what we wanted to get out of it. Although recently we realized that there were some pieces where splitting them away from the core sort of uh, virtual machine and minimal standard library was a mistake because we were ending up doing exactly those synchronized changes that you described and that that was problematic and so we moved a few things back but I'll say both that we don't really have a solution to this uh, in Racket and I think there is an interesting problem here which is how does sort of in language features like libraries coordinate with sort of IDE and development time features like projects and builds and I'm building this application and then coordinate with things like version control. And I think there's a lot of room to integrate those pieces and do a better job sort of across that whole stack of making our lives better as developers. So that's, and if you look at, for example, what people have done in the small talk community with images and people have even built version control systems that integrate with the language and with the image. You can get some real power out of integrating across all those concerns. So that's, that's one direction to go. But we haven't done that. We've stuck with text files and Git and 
the usual sorts of things, mm -hmm. uh, which have all their own strengths. The one thing I will say is that we have done something that's nice that I haven't seen in a lot of other package systems, which is a tight, pretty tight integration between the Git workflow for development and the package manager. So our the package manager for Racket uh, knows how to update packages that are installed as uh, by doing a Git clone so they can run Git pull for you. Um, it can install multiple packages from the same Git repository. Um, so you have one Git repository with several subdirectories and you can say, I want to install these packages. They're all part of the same Git repository. It'll share that. It will even warn you when you're about to do something where you install two different packages that really seem like they belong in the same upstream there in the same Git repository and you're going to have them in two separate repositories or one in a Git repository and one uh, just installed as, uh, from a zip file or something like that. And it'll offer to coalesce those so that that works better. There's some nice tooling steps that you can take to make working with the kinds of projects that you describe uh, somewhat better, but I don't think we or anyone that I know of has really a solution to those problems. Uh, this is ultimately why people like Facebook and Google are really excited about their single monolithic repository. And there's definitely some value there, uh, but there's also some big drawbacks there, especially if any part of what you're working with is open source and things that external people can contribute to. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trade-off there for if I'm not doing an open source thing, even inside a company, if I'm working with a team sufficiently large, the number of branches you have to maintain can go up if you make any incompatible changes. Well, that's one of the nice things about having separate artifacts and projects and repositories, maybe not repositories, but having separate artifacts and and a way to refer to versions of them is that you can keep them independent and application A can move forward on version 2 of the library while application B sticks with version 1 until at such time as it can be upgraded as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Totally. All right, well, that's, that's uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's just uh, take it as a compliment that I was hoping that the clever, clever folks yeah. in the racket world would have solved this very hard problem. But uh, Yeah, it's definitely something we run into, but it's not something that we've solved yet. Okay. All right. Well, cool. Well, we will certainly be keeping our eyes on you. Like I said, I always uh, keep an ear to the ground because uh, I have a lot of respect for the racket folks. And I know that uh, you've got a lot of big brains over there working on interesting problems to hopefully include this one at some point. Um, so so speaking of the collection of smart people, uh, I, I wonder if we could take a minute to talk about uh, – about RacketCon a bit. I don't actually don't know if you're involved in organizing. I know I've I've run into you there a couple times, but uh, what's what's going down at RacketCon this year? If you if you're aware, uh, yes. Yeah, so for anyone who among your listeners who doesn't know, RacketCon is uh, an annual one day uh, conference for Racket, and it's held the day after Strange Loop uh, in St. Louis in the same hotel that. Uh, Strange Loop is at. So that's a great opportunity if you're already going to Strange Loop to spend an extra day and see some really cool stuff uh, that's going on there. Um, so, what in particular is going on in RacketCon? I'm a little bit involved in the organization, which is primarily done by Vincent St. Amour, who's a researcher at Northwestern University who's the or primary organizer of RacketCon. Um, but there's some really cool uh, talks coming up. So the keynote is being given by Emina Torlock, and Emina is a professor at the University of Washington, and she's built this really amazing tool called Rosette. 
And ro what Rosette does is it lets you build a little domain-specific language using Racket, but then it automatically integrates whatever language you build with tools, automated solvers from the formal methods community that let you do things like automatically verify that your programs in the domain-specific language you've written satisfy a certain specification, or even you just write down a specification or some examples, and it'll automatically synthesize a program in your domain-specific language for the that meets the specification that you want. And they've used this for a bunch of really cool applications, ranging from things like synthesizing web page scrapers. So you give it some example web pages and what output you want to find on those web pages, and it'll write a program for you that does that. Or in a totally different space, figuring out how to write programs for the these incredibly low-power uh, chips made by a company called Green Arrays, which is the company started by Chuck Moore, the inventor of Forth. And these are really, these are chips that have 144 cores, I think, and an extremely weird instruction set and are very hard to program. And so what they did, what Emina and her collaborators did was come up with a way to generate these programs by using the tools that she's built in Racket. So that's that's the keynote and um, she's done some amazing stuff and she'll be giving a really cool talk at RacketCon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I go, I've go. i gone the last two years, and I'm signed up for this year. I should point out to our listeners that tickets are incredibly affordable. I, I want to say they're in the neighborhood of $50. I don't have the web yeah, page in front of me. Yeah, so but. I have the web page right here, and uh, tickets are $45. So there you go. So no reason not to go if you're anywhere in the neighborhood, and um, I would venture to say that uh, – if you can get yourself to St. Louis, um, that it's completely worth the trip, even if you don't go to Strange Loop, which of course is also awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. So some other cool talks that people are going to be giving are about building uh, simulators for uh, populations to do uh, uh, social science research, uh, or how to use the macro system in Racket to express uh, little domain-specific type systems. Or one of the talks that I'm really looking forward to is by a guy named Matthew Butterick, who is a typographer and has done a lot of work in making lots of parts of uh, Racket look nice but is in the process writing a book about writing domain-specific languages in Racket. And he's built his own domain-specific language for writing books and web pages, which is actually used to build the RacketCon web page. And he's going to be talking about uh, all the things that he's learned and this project he has to write this really cool book that's coming up. So, uh, and then uh, oh, one other uh, cool talk is about uh, writing uh, generative art with Racket, building rules and using that to gen generate repeated patterns that turn into some really cool art. Very cool stuff. Yeah, it's, it's it's just so fun. It's just it's really really great conference. Good energy. The people are super nice, and I just always feel like the dumbest person in the room in a very good way. So, I, like I said, I encourage people to go, and I will definitely be there. Awesome. 
Um, so I wonder if we could turn for a moment. Actually, I want to ask you a question um, about something that we're excited about in the closure world right now. And maybe you haven't uh, had a chance to look at it all. If that's, if that's the case, that's fine. There's other things we can talk about. But uh, I'm talking about closure spec. Uh, this is a fairly recent release um, uh, that uh, Rich Hickey came up with. Uh, it's, you know, like he always credits, it's, of course, built on a number of other ideas. But, you know, it's this library that we are in the process of of shipping uh, be out sometime before too long. Have you had a chance to look at this at all? Yeah, so I've looked some at uh, Closure Spec, and it seems really cool. So it builds on uh, a lot of things that we've done and uh, been working on, for example, in the Racket community about uh, what we call contracts. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've done a lot with and that is a big part of how typed racket works and is just a big piece of how we work uh, in racket all the time. If you look at racket documentation, every function is documented by giving the contracts for its inputs and its outputs. So that's a really big piece of what how we program and it's really cool to see other people giving their own spin on that idea and uh, using it in new languages. I should say that contracts are definitely not something that was invented in Racket. Uh, it goes way back and was first sort of popularized in the language, a language called Eiffel by Bertrand Meyer. But Racket's really taken it further, in particular focusing on how to handle higher order functions uh, mm. and things like that uh, and how to really build it comprehensively and make sure it performs well, which is something else that I've worked a bunch on. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, yeah, it's great to hear you say that that's a big part of how you work in Racket is to make use of contracts because spec is pretty much brand new. There was an amusing tweet, uh, so I think Rich announced uh, spec on like a Tuesday. And on Wednesday, I saw a tweet that said, you know, looking for closure engineer must have three years experience with spec, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, but the point is that uh, as as closurists, we are, uh, we don't, we haven't had spec around for a long time. I myself have built zero production systems using spec, and I suspect that's the the median, the mode, and the mean yeah. <laughs> for everybody, right? And so I'd love to get your take on um, any advice you think we might be able to leverage from your experience since you've been able to work with this approach for so long. You know what I mean? Like how do I approach writing a system with contracts? And what, what should I, how should I not overuse them? Like what are the mistakes that I can make? What are the things I should definitely should do? Anything you can offer us and help us get up that curve would be great. Yeah, so I'll offer a couple pieces of advice about this. So one is that the way we think about contracts in the racket community, and I think this has been really helpful, is really focusing on boundaries. And here are two components that are talking to each other. And what's their interface? And how can I document what that interface is. And that's really an incredibly valuable thing to have written down in your program. And the other piece is that if you're using these specs to check that your values actually conform to things and you're doing that at runtime, if you've put those things at the boundaries between libraries instead of in the middle of your inner loop, then often you can run with many of those checks on even in production, which means that you'll figure out what's going wrong when somebody violates one of those abstractions. Uh, And So I would say thinking about boundaries and thinking about that as the number one place you want to put these specifications, that's been a really big thing for us in Racket. The second thing that I'll say is that it's really possible to get a huge amount of value out of contracts or out of spec without writing a really detailed specification for things. Like if you just write a specification that says 
this takes two inputs and they're both maps and it produces a map, then that's already a big step forward even though you haven't specified what's in these maps, what are the keys, what are the values, or really any level of detail. But you can still get a big win. Your clients will have an easier time understanding how to consume your library. You'll have an easier time uh, documenting things. You'll be able to test things more easily and that sort of thing. Uh, so that's the second piece of advice. And the third is that there keep being additional places where you can use this information. And some of the ones that we've discovered uh, over time are already built right into spec, which is really cool to see. So for example, random generation of inputs based on the specification. So you can do random testing based on solely on writing down a specification. Now we know how to generate some input for this and we can test it. Uh, so that's really cool to see. Uh, but things like turning contracts automatically into documentation or providing people the ability to print out the contracts for values at the REPL or other things like that that can just uh, make or listing that information when you're doing autocomplete in your IDE. Uh, all those sorts of additional pieces of places where you can use that specification turn out to be really valuable. And I'm sure we're going to discover more and I'm sure the Clojure community will discover more as well as it as you folks get more experience with spec. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me about your description, and this matches with my initial um, explorations of spec, is that uh, I've been surprised by the extent to which the balance between human-oriented um, uh, leverage of spec and machine-oriented leverage of spec, and I'll explain that in a second, has tipped towards the human. In other words, like I, I write these specs and uh, I can do a couple things with them. I can use them to either generate documentation or simply read them myself or I can, you know, enable checking, right? And so I kind of think of those as being human-oriented, you know, aimed towards understanding and or machine-oriented where I'm trying to verify that, you know, program, program behavior is correct in some sense. And I've, for me, I've found so far that the balance has been heavier towards the human usage. In other words, I felt like I've won more on that side than I've won on the other side. Now, that might just be a matter of, the particular problems I'm solving or uh, or the way I'm using it or my inexperience with these technologies. Does that, though, match up or not match up with your experience? So I would say that I think the two sides really fit together. And one of the advantages of something like spec is that you can have both of those sides, that you have the human side where you look at something and you have a nice quick summary of what exactly this function does, but you also have that machine-oriented side so that you have somewhat more trust when you look at that specification that that's really what it's doing. And because we've all had the experience that you come across a piece of software and it has some comments saying what it does and those comments bear no resemblance <laughs> to what the function actually does. And uh, often you'll see like, fix me, update this comment. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's very frustrating, especially if you spend some time thinking about the problem based on that incorrect idea about what's going on. And that's one of the great things about things like spec is that you can make sure that that human use stays in sync with what's actually going on in the system. And that you can't, in a way that your comments aren't going to, but also that you can turn the dial as much towards 
making it easy to write whatever you want without needing to be really strict about that machine use of the specifications the way you would if you were going all the way to something like a type system. Hmm. It's a good reminder that it's not really a dichotomy. It's, 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 you don't have to pick one or the other or, or pick where on the spectrum you are. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, one of the great things about systems like spec. I, I, there's a couple of the things I want to talk to you about. There was so much interesting in there that we, I'm sure we could dive further. But um, one of the things that uh, caught my eye that I don't want to let you go today without uh, digging around a little bit on is on your on your webpage. Uh, uh, you mentioned that you're interested in in the evolution of software, and I think that that is such an evocative and interesting phrase that I want to I want to hear from from you in your own words what you think that means and and obviously we've talked about things like uh, you know like, like tight racket and stuff and I think that's part of that story but I think the phrase to me uh, evokes a much broader uh, vision or set of, of set of activities or technologies or whatever so what, what does that mean yeah so what that means for me is thinking about how to support programmers as they work on programs over a long period of time. Uh, and I originally started thinking about this in the context of type bracket, where the particular use case I was focused on was something where you have some system that often you thought would be simple, turned out not to be so simple. You want to make it easier to maintain, and you've decided that having uh, some type checking, at least in some parts of the system, will help you accomplish those maintenance goals. And that's really been the driving force behind the design of type bracket. But as you say, this is a much broader idea, and that goes for everything from how do you go from the kinds of programs that we write still these days as bash scripts to evolve them to be real programs written in a real programming language. And I'm sure you've had this experience where you have something where you copy and paste some commands into a bash script or a make file and you run them and eventually that gets too complicated and you have to throw it away and write a program in a real programming language like Clojure. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a really interesting question about how can we, how can we make that process easier for people? Uh, and what's the right way to do that? Is it to provide ways of writing those shell scripts in a language that's more like Clojure. Uh, and people have tried to do that. People have come up with shell-like languages for a variety of systems. So there's a system called Scheme Shell, for example, that was aimed at doing shell scripting-like tasks. But nothing's ever really approached the convenience and flexibility of shells for that. And I think there's an interesting question. What is it that allows us to do that so easily? And can we make that into, can we bring those features into a programming language? Another aspect that I think about is um, what happens when your language grows some new features and you want to take advantage of them. How do you do that in a way that doesn't require starting from scratch? And that's a question that I've thought a lot about in the context of my work on JavaScript. So I'm on the standards committee for JavaScript. Uh, it's called TC39, if any of your listeners have heard of that. And we've made, over the past six years that I've been on the committee, a bunch of big and important and valuable changes to JavaScript. For example, we've added a module system to the language, and that's something that I was one of the designers of. And for people who have JavaScript 
that they wrote before this and they want to move to using JavaScript modules or they've written code using one of the previous module systems, how can that integrate with new code written using new modules? How can you evolve your program piece by piece to use these new technologies? And how can you make that work together, make those pieces work together over time? And um, so, so that's something that we thought a lot about when we were designing this system in JavaScript, as well as lots of other features in JavaScript. How can we make this play nicely with the programs and the idioms and the way people work that they already have and that they don't want to throw away? So are there any, I mean, I'm always looking for like guiding principles or, or you know, rules of thumb or, or insights that you've gotten. Yeah, so I think the central guiding principle uh, that I take uh, is that you've really got to look at the way people actually use the system and then adapt your solution to work for the way, way people actually work. And that, that applies in all of these examples. Uh, you can't design your type system for racket or for closure without thinking about how people really write programs in those languages, which is going to be different for every language. And there's some common principles that you can learn, but you've really got to get familiar with the programs that people write, the ways that people want to work, and really tackle those things in particular. And this is an idea that, for me, I learned a lot from this early work on a type system for small talk in the early 90s by uh, Gilad Braha. Uh, so he designed this system called Strong Talk that the that was a system a lot like typed racket or core typed uh, that worked for a small talk system uh, that they were building. And that also had this idea about here's the way people actually use the language and we're going to focus on that. We're not going to focus on everything that anyone could possibly have done. We're going to focus on what people actually do and we're going to support that. And that's, that's been sort of the biggest guiding principle when I think about software evolution is to look at the idioms that people actually use. Does that become more challenging in a language like Racket? I mean, the tag, one of the taglines anyway is, uh, you know, it's a programming language, programming language, right? This idea in Racket, very strong idea in the Racket that you first come up with a language or as part of the process of solving a problem, you come up with a language that helps you solve that problem. So then do you wind up with more diversity in the way that people are programming uh, that you have to account for in your solution? So I think, yes, this definitely comes up. And this gets into uh, a sort of broader point about uh, Lisp, different Lisp communities, I think, that I'll get to in a second, uh, which is it's definitely the case that in Racket people use macros and they use the syntactic extension facilities and they use the whole of the programmable programming language to shape the language to their liking. And that can certainly make life harder for typed racket. And some of the biggest pieces of work we've had to do is to work hard to extend the type system to accommodate some of the big abstractions that people have built, like the OO system uh, in Racket, which 
is built entirely using macros, entirely using these language extension features. And so Type Bracket has to work hard to figure out how that works and how to apply a type system to that. And so that certainly makes life harder. But one thing I will say is that I think Racket as a community has done a good job of staying somewhat unified about what new language features we build using the power that the language gives us. And that's not to say that people don't create simple one-off macros a lot, uh, because they absolutely do. But you don't see things like you see in the scheme community or I think in the common list community where different groups of programmers really program in effectively totally different dialects of the language that they've built themselves. There's a lot of pressure to standardize on abstractions like the OO system, uh, etc., that even though they're built with macros and somebody could conceivably build their own, we unify on a particular one as a community and that reduces some of the potential confusion that you can have when switching from one code base to another. And that incidentally also makes life easier for people trying to do things like type racket. Yeah, we have, uh, I'm sure you, well, maybe you do, maybe you have the same phrase, at least you have the same idea. Well, we, you know, we talk a lot in uh, Closure World about idiomatic closure, right? Like there's a, this idea that there is an idiom. It's obviously not strictly true, but certainly when I go to clients, one of the things that they're often interested in hearing is, does my code look like other people's code? And, you know, yes or no, right? I mean, you know, it does in yeah. some ways, it does in others, so. Yeah, and I think having a community sense for what code is idiomatic is really valuable for keeping the community together and uh, having everybody going in sort of a similar direction so that when you go to a client, everything doesn't suddenly look totally different and alien compared to the last uh, body of code that you were looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. That's very interesting. Um, I, I do see, looking at the clock, that I should probably not keep you terribly much longer. Uh, that said, I, um, you know, we have a, we have a conversation, and I tend to ask a lot of the questions, um, which means that uh, to some degree, I'm influencing the direction of the conversation. So I always like to leave room uh, at the end of the show, and we certainly have however much time we need to take. Uh, in case there's anything that the guest has that they would like to talk about that hasn't come up yet. So I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to to share with our audience or discuss with me uh, today that we haven't hit. Certainly, um, I would love to have you back on. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I think we've got lots more to talk about. Um, so we can do that. But uh, but I also want to give you room to talk today um, to me or our audience about anything else that you think we should cover uh, before we go. Hmm. It's no pressure. <laughs> so I don't, I don't think I have... Uh... A particular uh, topic that I want to get to, I I do want to say that it's I really enjoy uh, the opportunity to talk with people in the closure community because I think in a lot of ways the bracket and closure communities have a lot to learn from each other. That mm-hmm. the two communities have a lot in common, but also some really different focuses and ways that that's played out and uh, in social aspects, in project approach aspects, in technical aspects, and that that cross-pollination I think is really cool and one of the reasons why I really enjoy having RacketCon co-located with StrangeLoop where there's a lot of people from the Clojure community who come and who've uh, gotten to talk. We had uh, Fogus give a keynote at RacketCon that was really cool. 
about uh, uh, about a lot of different things. But uh, <laughs> so that's um, that's been a neat uh, a neat sort of cross pollination that I've really enjoyed. Yeah, me too. I mean, I mentioned already that I really enjoy RacketCon, and that's definitely a part of it. Is this sort of uh, sense of being cousins, right? Uh, yeah. You go to uh, you go to Strange Loop, and Strange Loop is quite quite a variety of of people. I mean, primarily, I suppose, functional languages, but you get people that are working in a ton of different stuff. It's quite different to something like uh, one of our conferences, like the Closure Conch, where there's a single language that people are mostly oriented around. But when I go there. I definitely get the same sense you do, which is that among all that uh, very, very friendly uh, cross, you know, uh, consideration, cross community interaction, I, I definitely get the sense that when I go to the racket, people, it's like, oh, well, yeah, there's a, there's differences here, but at the same time, I, we're more alike than you know than other communities than we are like other communities. So it's it's I totally I just agreeing with what you said. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, awesome. Well, that sounds that sounds like this makes a great place to um, to wrap up for today. Um, certainly, love to have you back on. Always love talking to uh, people in the racket community, and uh, you have been no exception, sir, uh, by any stretch. So it's been really fun to have you on. So thanks for thanks for taking the time. I know the life of professor is a very busy one, uh, so I certainly appreciate you uh, you coming on and talking to us today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to your listeners of course uh this has been a really fun conversation and i'd love to do it again sometime excellent well i would i I, we will have to make that happen then so we'll go ahead and wrap up there though and uh, thank you one more time as we go out this has been the cognacast You have been listening to The Cognacast. The Cognacast is a production of Cognitect, Inc. Cognitect are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitect. You can subscribe to The Cognacast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Sam Tobin Hochstadt on Twitter at Sam TH. S A M T H. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.